Amen. Good morning to each of you. It is an honor to be here with you at St. Mark United Methodist Church this day. I want to give thanks to my good friend, Dana Everhart, for the invitation to be here with you today and for all of your pastors, for Jennifer and for Sheila and the rest of the staff as well. I thank you for this very warm invitation and for all of you who've gathered here today. I am grateful for the work and ministry that is done here at St. Mark and has been done for many, many years now. Uh, you are a beacon of hope and light in this community and in the world. And I thank God for each of you. The gospel message this morning will come from the gospel of Luke chapter 14, uh, sorry, chapter four. And I'll read from verses 14 through 21. If it is your custom to stand during the reading of the gospel, please do so. Then Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I will speak from the topic, making things right. Making things right. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter. I am the clay. Amen. A few years ago, I was an associate pastor at another church when another pastor was disgusted with my propensity to speak about injustice inside and outside of the church. In one of our more heated conversations, I was telling him that I had to speak about injustice in our world because it's central to the gospel message. He looked at me and said, no, it's not. I was stunned. This person was someone with seniority and a superior role, a supervisory role over me. I knew what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to let it go and move on, but there was something in me that just couldn't. This pastor felt strongly that justice was not an integral part of the gospel and also thought that he could dictate to me what it was. After a very heated exchange back and forth, he asked me to stop preaching about injustice. He wanted me to just preach Jesus. Y'all heard my <laughs> information about who I am and what I do, and you probably think that I'm a really nice guy. 
and mostly I am. I think I'm a nice guy, but sometimes I have a really grave complex that pushes me to challenge authority. This is, in fact, how I ended up expelled from my elementary school in fourth grade and how I was almost expelled again in seventh grade, how I ended up moving out of my mom's house in Michigan at 12 and to live with my dad in Georgia, how I ended up moving out of my dad's house when I was 16 and how I, never mind, you, you get the point. I've got issues. Anyhow, I have this authority complex that's triggered anytime someone tries to assume a power over me that they don't actually have. I am sure you have experienced people who think they can control things about your life that is none of their business. They want to control what you wear, what you think, what you do with your own body, who you love, and anything else that makes them feel powerful. Some people simply ignore these types of folks and move on. Then there are people like me who can't let a good opportunity go by to tick somebody off. <laughs> this pastor who couldn't see justice as an integral part of the gospel felt that he could force me to accept his interpretation of scripture. In truth, I can't call his view an interpretation. It's more like biblical, Christological, theological malpractice. Yet to further attempt to make his point, he required me to reread the New Testament with him and have discussions every couple of weeks as a way of challenging justice in the gospel. I had no choice, so I began the reading, the journaling, and the discussing. Every time we'd meet, he'd ask, so where did you see justice in the gospel? I started by helping him understand what justice is. An easy way to understand justice is to think about typing a letter or writing in the word processor like Microsoft Word. There's a setting where you can highlight a paragraph and click this button that will left justify the paragraph. This means that the first letter of each line would line up perfectly on the left side of the page. There's another setting that allows you to justify the right side of the page. An example of this can be found in most Bibles that are generally left and right justified. That's fitting. To justify means to line things up to be right. So a simple definition of justice is making things right. Every time this pastor and I met, he had to stop me from showing him all the places where Jesus is making things right. Every time we met, my journal entries were filled with examples and Jesus calling us to do the same. Most often when I am talking about, uh, talking, preaching, or teaching about justice, my go-to text is Luke 4. It is among my favorite passages in all of scripture. I consider it to be the thesis statement for the gospel of Luke. Jesus declares, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is literally saying that God has sent him to make things right. Then after he says this, the rest of the gospel of Luke is devoted to showing us all the ways in which Jesus 
does this. Jesus takes the good news to the poor when he feeds those with no food and when he helps the widow who has no means of providing for herself by raising her son from the dead. Jesus proclaims release to the captives when he frees people from the demons who have bound them and the sins that have held them down. Jesus gave recovery of sight to the blind when he healed a blind man and when he gave insight to people who could not see that God was a God of grace and mercy. Jesus liberated the oppressed when he cleansed the temple of manipulators and money changers, when he healed people on the Sabbath, even after the Pharisees were present and looking for ways to kill him. Jesus spent his entire ministry on earth declaring the year of the Lord. The year of the Lord is a year of jubilee when the ground is allowed to rest, debts are deleted, prisoners are set free. It's the year where things are made right. These five things are detailed all through the gospel of Luke and indeed are the responsibility of his disciples. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, we must be about the business that he was about. <laughs> Sadly, when I look around, I see Christians who worship a different kind of Jesus. This is apparently another Jesus who has blonde hair, blue eyes, and who does not look like the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew of the first century, and worse, does not behave like him either. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. What was Gandhi talking about? About. Gandhi was, saw a disconnect from the Christ of the Gospels and the Christians of his day. He saw dysfunction. Dysfunction is when something or someone is operating outside of his intended purpose or deviates from what it was created to do or be. I'm going to say it again. Dysfunction is when something or someone is operating outside of his intended purpose or deviates from what it was created to do or be. Using that definition, there is a lot of dysfunction in the American church and in the American Christian. What are those dysfunctions? One of them is neglecting justice, having no will to make things right. The scripture highlights what Jesus was anointed to do and what we are charged to embody, but this dysfunctional Christian who has lost sight of their calling to seek justice has perverted the gospel. What are the signs of this perversion? No connections to the poor. Ignoring the call to reclaim release to the captives. Failure to work to bring proper insight to those who cannot see the grace and mercy of God. Abandonment of the responsibility to liberate the oppressed. And no commitment to proclaiming the Lord's grace and mercy for all. And what do these dysfunctions look like? The church in America has largely lost its connection to the poor. In fact, there are whole communities devoted to rooting out the poor. Listen to what I said. They aren't committed to rooting out poverty. Committed to rooting out the poor. There are communities where the poor are hidden. They are out of sight and out of mind. They believe that if we can avoid seeing them, 
then they don't exist. How can you bring good news to the poor if you don't know who they are? And you have to drive miles and miles in order to see them. The same people proclaim that they love God and love neighbor, but it's easy to love your neighbor when you can almost handpick who your neighbor is. This is dysfunctional and is a perversion of justice and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is dysfunction when Christians ignore the call to proclaim release to the captives. Instead, this country has invested in for-profit prisons that literally have prisoners as their assets. If you are a for-profit prison, how do you make more money this year than you did last year? That's easy. You make sure that you lock up more people. There are for-profit prisons publicly traded on the stock market. People are banking their futures on increase, increasing prison populations, and those companies are lobbying and paying off politicians to make more laws punishable with prison time. But our nation is not locking up people evenly. It is locking up black and brown people more than anybody else. Did you know that the U.S. is home to 25% of the world's prisoners? The U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. When Roger Stone was arrested for contributing to the defrauding of the U.S., he was out of jail that very afternoon, the same day. But poor black and brown people are given bail amounts they can't afford and sit in jail cells awaiting trial that even if found innocent will ruin their ability to get and keep jobs. Systems like these are supposed to be, uh, are, are supported by people who count themselves as Christians. This is dysfunctional and it ain't right. And you can do something about it. Here's one thing you can do. If you have a retirement account or a 401k or some other investment account, call your broker or your retirement company and ask them if they invest in Core Civic or the GEO Group. These two companies are the biggest for-profit prison companies and pay lobbyists to advocate for more criminal laws so they can sell more prison beds to the government to put people in. If your portfolio includes Core Civic or Geo Group, tell them you want your money out of there today, immediately. A disciple of Jesus committed to justice would not allow their money to be connected to something like this. Get your money out of there. It is dysfunctional when the Christian fails to work towards the healing of those who are sick. In the richest country on the face of the earth, there are millions of people who cannot get medical attention. Too many people die from treatable conditions because they don't have adequate health care. And our government has worked to reduce health care coverage for its citizens, while many Christians remain silent or worse, advocate for the loss of health care. This is dysfunctional, and it ain't right. It's a perversion of justice and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is dysfunctional when the Christian abandons the responsibility to work towards justice for the oppressed. Instead, the dysfunctional Christian supports safe haven for those who do the oppressing. They are more suited to be members of the BBB 
because they are more committed to erecting buildings, maintaining budgets, and keeping butts in seats than they are to living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They feel no commitment to advocating for those caught up in webs of oppression, no commitment to work towards ending sex trafficking, sexual abuse, predatory lending, or speaking out against policies and practices that smash people down and cut people out. This is dysfunctional and it ain't right. Part of the core of who a Christian is created to be is to be a person committed to grace, mercy, justice, righteousness, and love. But we move so quickly to be selective with God's grace. We want to stand and determine who can be part of the social club, forgetting that the only reason we are here is because of God's grace. Even the dysfunctional Christians should be welcome in the house. But there are some groups of people who get treated as if they have a contagious disease that makes us grow into a werewolf if they are in the space. Instead of being trained in how to love those we have difficulty loving, we are groomed to hate. What is it about the immigrant that frightens us? So? Do we really think they're here to make our jobs go away? And what does that say about our own work ethic? What is it about the Muslim that frightens us so? Do we really think that they have come here to plant bombs and plan for our murder? Last time I checked, the United States is still in the top five in the world when it comes to the number of murders and the number of suicides. How is a Muslim a threat to me? What is it about persons who are LGBTQ that frightens us so? Do we really think that they threaten our marriage? The leading cause of divorce in this country is finances and infidelity. Those things appear to be real threats to marriage. If a heterosexual couple wants a secure marriage, they should love their own spouse, talk, spend time with each other, put the kids somewhere and go upstairs in their room and lock the door and mind their own business. Worry about what's happening in their own bedroom and not what two consenting adults are doing in theirs. There are people in churches who said more about same-sex couples and transgender folks who haven't said a word about Bill Cosby, Prince Andrew, R. Kelly, or the many folks they know who abuse teenage girls with Theo Epstein. Those I've named haven't been a threat to anyone's marriage either, but they have been a threat to every woman in society by normalizing sexual abuse and systemic mistreatment of women. If we want to attack sexual sin, our silence of sexual assault and harassment is clearly incompatible with Christian teaching. It's dysfunctional, and it is a perversion of justice and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the Christian can't bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, or declare God's grace and mercy, what is the point of being a Christian? How can we be Christ followers without actually following? A disciple of Jesus can't quietly watch God's children suffer. We can't sit quietly while children are living in extended stay hotels after experiencing various levels of neglect from their families. We can't sit quietly while people work 40 hours a week and still can't afford to provide for their families. We can't sit quietly while people lose their health care, 
while people are hungry day after day, while women are humiliated and treated like robots with no hearts and no souls. We can't sit quietly when a judge in Minnesota gives a slap on the wrist to the cop who killed Dante Wright because she didn't, because the cop didn't sit on his neck for nine and a half minutes. We can't sit quietly while voting rights are stripped from citizens almost completely on racial basis. We can't sit quietly when mountains of oppression surround us that dashes hopes, kills dreams, and cancels futures. We can't be disciples of Jesus and idly watch the rest of humanity be crucified from the comfort of stained glass windows and high steeples. The gospel of Jesus calls us to do as Jesus did. Jesus didn't just talk about these things. He didn't just help people move past these things. Jesus defeated these things by becoming them. The good news to the poor was that they weren't alone. Jesus literally became one of them. Jesus came down from heaven and was poor throughout his life and ministry. He had no home, only ate at other people's houses, and couldn't even afford to pay for his own burial after he was lynched. Jesus literally became the prisoner arrested on trumped-up charges in a system designed to make sure he would be found guilty no matter what. Jesus became the blind after he was arrested and blindfolded. They blindfolded him to mock him and call him names, asking him, which one of us is hitting you? He became the oppressed time and time again as he was hunted and schemed against for the benefit of the elite. Jesus became one of us. Jesus knew what it was to be poor. He knew what it was to be a prisoner. He knew what it was to be blinded. He knew what it was to be oppressed. He fulfilled the meaning of his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus certainly came to show grace, mercy, and love, but he also came to bring justice to make things right, not just between us and God, but also between us and us. This is why when he finished reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the part I want you to remember. Jesus does all of this because he was filled with the power of the spirit of God. At the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil, but the first words of the chapter say, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led to the wilderness. When he comes, comes down from the wilderness after being tempted by the devil, it says, when Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. That's when he went to the synagogue and when he read from the scroll of Isaiah that said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The way to combat Christian dysfunction and to make things right is to be filled with the power of the Spirit. Let the same Spirit that is in Jesus Christ be also in us. If the Spirit is in us, if we are filled with the power of the Spirit, then we will be anointed to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to, to declare the Lord's love, grace, mercy, righteous, and justice. One of the greatest examples for me of someone filled with the Spirit of God 
doing all possible to make things right is the late John Lewis, whose birthday, ironically, is tomorrow, who was a congressman who represents this district for many years. In his book, Walking with the Wind, he details that fateful day when he was beaten by police at the foot of a bridge in Selma that is still to this day named for the leader of the Alabama KKK. After that beating, he had a fractured skull along with other injuries and was hospitalized. When he learned that the march was going to continue, he was determined to take part with the others who had gathered. His doctors pleaded with him not to march. It would take five days to walk the 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery, and they would have to camp out at night outside at these tent cities that were set up along the way. And John was determined to be with those marchers every step of the way. And so his doctors pleaded with him and convinced him to allow a car each day, each night, to drive him back to the hospital in Selma. And then in the morning, back to where the marchers were to continue marching with the group. John Lewis, with a fractured skull, marched 54 miles so that every citizen in this nation would be able to exercise their right to vote. If he could do that, then there isn't a voter suppression law in this state or in this country that should be able to stop us from making it to the polls in every election if we allow the spirit to guide us and to be in us. What an example of a disciple of Jesus was John Lewis. Like John, we are the body of Christ, here to make things right and not to jack things up. Go and be disciples. In the name of God, the creator, Jesus, the redeemer, and the Holy Spirit who sustains us, amen.